From the courtroom to the tabloids, welcome to All Rise. All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your host, Dylan Howard. From America's dad to a sexually violent predator, Bill Cosby sentenced to three to ten years in prison. The verdict stemming from a 2004 encounter with Andrea Konstadt, who testified that Bill Cosby drugged and raped her in his Philadelphia home. Today, he sits behind bars. What's life like for Bill Cosby now? Gone is the life of luxury, and now he's an inmate. Plus, has Robert Wagner told police everything he knows about Natalie Wood's tragic death? Well, we have a top lie detection expert who will reveal that Robert Wagner may not have been entirely truthful during the interviews that he's given and potentially engineered a three-decades-long cover-up about the mysterious drowning of the screen siren. In an All Rise exclusive, one of the men on that boat is here to answer the toughest questions yet. Is it Robert Wagner? Is it Christopher Walken? Or is it the boat captain, Dennis Deverne? That's coming up on All Rise. Inmate number NN7687. That is now Bill Cosby, convicted on sex crimes and jailed this week. Less than an hour after his publicist stood on the steps of the Pennsylvania courthouse and compared him to Brett Kavanaugh, Tupac, and even Jesus, America's dad was now a convicted rapist and put in a single cell inside a brand spanking new correctional facility where staff have been accused of hate crimes and abuse and at least one inmate has died since that same prison opened in July. I've assembled an all-star panel, including Larry Lawton, the author of Gangster Redemption, How America's Most Notorious Jewel Robber Got Rich, Got Caught, and Got His Life Back. Larry is an expert on prisons and has a lot to say about what Bill Cosby has to worry about, about being inside. Also on my panel is a reporter who was inside the courtroom and is very deeply connected to the inside world of Bill Cosby. Nick Hatziafstat Theo is a national correspondent for the National Enquirer. Nick, you were inside the courtroom. Describe to me how Bill Cosby reacted when he learned he was being jailed. So right before the sentence came in, as the judge was uh, reading him the pre-sentence speech that he had, he ended it with, Mr. Cosby, your day has come, your time has come. And Cosby looked over to his lawyer, kind of shocked, because uh, there was about a five to 10 second pause before the sentence was handed down. And as the judge started saying that he's going to be in total confinement, he's not considering probation, he's not considering parole immediately, no house arrest, Cosby's face definitely changed. He had a, a, an odd facial expression. He looked down. He received the sentence and his lawyers argued that he should stay on house arrest during the appeal or he should report back. 
and the judge broke for about an hour or so to make that decision. And the entire time, for the first time, Cosby didn't leave the courtroom for about 45 minutes during the break. He was discussing it with his lawyers. He seemed visibly upset. And I don't think he was expecting that to come. I think he was expecting house arrest or probation. He definitely knew he was going to be on Megan's Law for the rest of his life. As a, a tier five sexually violent predator, he knew that was coming, but he thought he was going to be at home. And if he was going to be receiving a jail sentence, he thought he would at least have a couple of months to prepare for the jail sentence, not immediately be remanded. And he was definitely shocked by by the outcome. Now, Nick, more than most, you are deeply connected inside the world of Bill Cosby. You have sources very close to the once superstar actor. Can you tell me how he's dealing inside prison at the moment? He's very, from what I hear, he's very confident that he's going to get out. Uh, He had a few incidents at the local county jail where they took his cane. Uh, He fell down a few steps because they weren't guiding him, they said. And it was within an hour of him going to the Montgomery County jail that he was transferred to a maximum uh, prison facility, maximum security. Uh, and he thought that he would be safer in the county jail because he knows the sheriffs there. They treat him pretty well at the trial. They treated him pretty well. And now he's in the hands of the state, which is a very different atmosphere. It's not your local county jail. He's in jail with murderers. He's in jail with death row inmates. Um, he went from living at four or five estates to a tiny cell, Um, He's used to being on the phone all day. He can't do that as much anymore. But what we did learn is that he is able to call his attorney on an unrecorded line from a counselor's office. And the attorney is able to tap in his family, his staff, and it's not a a short conversation. They don't have a time limit. So he is able to use the phone, as we reported months ago, that that's his number one uh, favorite thing to do is sit on the phone. He's able to do that. But when you take a multimillionaire, somebody that's almost worth half a billion dollars and you put him in a tiny cell with a metal bed, uh, he loses his power, his um, ability to dictate what goes on. It's, it's definitely a hard situation, I would assume, for somebody in that level of wealth to go to a jail that now he has to have a maximum order of $70 worth of commissary. He doesn't have a chef. He's eating whatever they give him, which we learned he's also not eating the food. We reported that yesterday. So for him not eating, the guy's obviously not taking it too well. He's not doing too well. And I think that's why they have him in a cell right across from the infirmary, just in case something happens. He's right by the medical unit. So Fascinating insight. You mentioned his desire to want to talk on the phone. You also broke a story that even though his wife, Camille Cosby, was not at the sentencing, it was his first call that he made behind bars. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so he spoke to Camille, apologized for what had happened throughout the years, reassured her that he's going to be out. Uh, Camille reportedly went back to Massachusetts on Tuesday, kind of fled back over there, We are hearing now that the children have returned to Pennsylvania's house. They've been missing from the scene for about two years since this all started. He hasn't seen his children since this has started. And now that their dad is locked up, 
they're back at the Pennsylvania house. We're not sure what they're doing there yet. We're working to find out. Um, but the first phone call was really almost like a cry for help. That's where he mentioned that he had, um, they took his cane. He fell down a couple of steps and he had a hot dog bun thrown at him. It was kind of, he was looking for some support and from the sound of it, he didn't get as much support as he expected, but Camille did stay on the phone with him. They were, they've been married for what, 52 years. So she did stay on the phone. She she talked to him for a little while, but it doesn't sound like this is going to be something that she's going to do on the regular. We did find out that it doesn't sound like she's going to visit him in prison. She had stated before that she'd rather be caught dead before visiting her husband in a jail. And even if she did visit him in prison, the rules are so strict that somebody that has that much wealth and they're used to this lifestyle, they're not going to be walking into a prison and getting sniffed by a dog and searched. It's stuff like that that's kind of preventing her from going. And then on top of that, she wasn't at a trial, you know, so it's very unlikely that she'll be visiting him. So this prison itself is located on 164 acres. It's 35 miles northwest of Philadelphia. It's a venue titled the Phoenix State Correctional Institution. It's a maximum security facility that costs taxpayers $400 million. Now, when I read you this, you're going to think that it is somewhat a life of luxury if there is ever such a thing when it comes to jail. The new facility has a basketball court, a laundry room, a chapel, 3,830 beds, 192 of which are dedicated to a female transitional unit focused on re-entry and family unification. Larry Lawton, a fascinating character yourself, somebody who is a former career criminal, once known as the biggest jewel robber in the United States. You were previously sentenced to jail in 1996, 144 months in a federal prison. What will Bill Cosby face behind bars? Well, you know, it's fascinating to hear the conversation the way it started. And and, uh, let me just give you a little insight. I was sentenced to four 12-year sentences uh, to run concurrently. And what that means, everybody says, well, why do you give somebody like three life sentences? Well, if you beat one on an appeal, you still have to do the life sentence. So that's the reasoning. I was given four 12-year sentences and beat a life sentence by getting doing the law. I, I'm a certified paralegal. I got enough credits to be a lawyer, but obviously as a convicted felon, I can't. Uh, let me let me go. First of all, you were talking about in the beginning, he went to a new facility and it looks beautiful. I was strapped down naked, beaten and tortured and urinated on by guards in a new facility. So it doesn't matter what the facility looks like. It's what's and who is running it. Also, you talked about the phone and the counselor's offices. I'm going to go into that for a second. He's getting the privilege now because he's he's in the process of getting settled. And they will always give the new inmate a chance to call family, to call lawyers and stuff. But he's not going to have unlimited access to his lawyer as well. He will have access to a lawyer. They can't deny that. But the lawyer might have to come up there. He will get legal mail. And when he does speak to his lawyer, it will be not monitored. Any other calls he makes will be monitored. And believe me, as someone of his status, they will be uh, listening intently. And for a number of reasons, uh, he's going to be extorted. 
Uh, he it started already. He's going to have people who don't like him. He's going to have people who have people that are uh, uh, mad that he's a celebrity and he has money and they think he's going to get away with stuff and he's not. Uh, sometimes uh, the celebrity inmates get treated worse. And I often talk about Jeffrey Dahmer, who, yes, he was a psychopath who ate people, and but he was sentenced to a life sentence and he was murdered uh, on the yard and stabbed, which I've seen many, many times. Just because Bill Cosby's old and, and, and the old feeble thing uh, does not uh, exempt him from being from being abused. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. When someone is Bill Cosby's age, you would anticipate that they're probably going to get more protection. But you think it's the opposite. I, I don't think. I know because I watched it. Uh, it. You'd feel bad for some of the older people, uh, depending, obviously, who he aligns with. He is uh, – the whites could be the dirty white boys, Aryan brothers, Aryan circle, Aryan nation. Blast could be the BTD, Black Gorilla family, or Bloods, Crips, GD – which is gangster disciples, Spanish gangster, Norteños, Sedanios, Aztecas, MA. Now they all have that, all prisons. That's really where gangs go. And I only mention gangs, not that he's going to be an active member of a gang, but just like John Gotti, he aligned himself with the Aryan Brotherhood in the prison in Marion, in the maximum security prison he was in in Marion. And here's a man who's a pretty tough character who I knew personally. And uh, you'd think that he's not going to get messed with. Well, he was messed with. So doesn't matter your age. And here's what happens. Bill Cosby's going to try to, you know, smooth his way. And if he thinks he's going to talk like the privileged person and treat people like, you know, they're below him, he's got another thing coming. And he's going to be abuse is sick. There's sick people in prison. I, I, I explain prison like this. I was in a maximum security prison. We had 2000 inmates, 880 had life sentences. 200 of those people fight their case legally. 450, 80, they actually get a lover and and live a life of a life. They go to the prison work, they come home and they have a lover, and it's 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 a weird thing. And the lovers there will tattoo their lips red and and put tattoo blush and it's it's crazy. They'll shave their eyebrows and tattoo eyebrows, and they'll make panties out of uh, Kool Aid and to to make them pink and cut them up. And then you have another two hundred who are psychopaths. I tell this at uh, places that I speak at all the time. I don't want to see any one of those people out and about near anybody. I also want to emphasize what you said in the beginning. Yes, I was the biggest jewel robber in the country and all that. And I'm not proud of that. I What I do, and I'm the only honorary ex, uh, ex-felon in the country who's an honorary police officer and also recognized on the floor of the United States Congress for helping people stay out of prison. Obviously, Bill Cosby, because of his crime and the nature of his crime, is going to have a very rough ride, even though uh, it's questionable, uh, the roofies and the quaaludes and, and what he did. And let me give you an example of that. I was one of the people who did the law in prison, and I used to what they call pull paperwork. I would take a person who come to prison, and a lot of times they don't have their paperwork, the actual trial transcripts and stuff that happened. Prisons don't let that in because of the abuse level. But I would be able to pull their docket sheet uh, from the outside, and I would look at the crime. 
if a person was a, a convicted of a 19 or 20 year old kid was convicted of a crime of having sex with a 16 or 17, we gave them a pass. But there's a, a, a statute in the in the books that if you have sex with a person under 12, you're done. You're going to be thrown off a tier, stabbed. I watched a guy throw two guys lure one guy underneath and two other guys drop a buffer machine on his head. And I watched it. His whole head went down into his body and crushed him. And so things are going to happen now. Bill Crosby's crime is not that of the worst, but he's going to come off like he's somebody I have a feeling thinking he's privileged. And as, as the reporter said, he's dead correct. He's coming from living, you know, he's worth $500 million and he's in a mansion. He's got servants. He has people. All of that ends. What Bill Cosby will get is some inmates who will actually say to him, hey, you send me money on the books, they call it, and I'll do your laundry. Or you send me money on the books and I'll clean your cell. But also he's only across from an infirmary. The infirmary in real prisons is not where the housing units are. He's only in there for the beginning to to make sure he's able-bodied to go on what they call a yard. And he's going to be able – he's not going to stay at that facility in front of an infirmary cell. They don't do that. That's just a temporary spot. Larry, I want to ask you the final question. Sure. Will Bill Cosby make it out alive? You know, I'm going to pull something here. I'm going to say no, depending on his health. First, and I'll tell you why. First of all, there's no such thing as health care in prison. They can talk about it all they want and say they give it. I had a man come out of a prison hospital, walk. He was having chest pains, arm pains. His own prison guy he worked with, with the, it's called the uh, CMS, where they do the prison maintenance. And he worked there. The guard he worked for said, get to the infirmary. You, you look terrible. He had bad pains. He lived two cells from me. He walked back into the unit. He grabs my friend and says, Jimmy, I'm dying. We put him, he's coming back from the infirmary, mind you. We put we put him in a chair. He keeled over and he died. And I've seen many men die. And the first thing that happens is they defecate themselves. And the prison ended up throwing me in the hole for 11 months for fighting that they killed him. They told him he had gas. Get out of here. And he, and he came back to the unit and died of a massive heart attack right in front of him. He was in the infirmary. So there is no medical care. I, I get the, you know, what they're going to put up on, on uh, websites and how it looks. And it's all BS. Let's call it what it is. And it, it what I think is going to happen, if, if his medical condition, it, it, I don't know if it was an act. And that's another thing. And the reporter would know that more than I would if Bill Cosby was kind of acting for the court and the juries and everything else. If if he had any real serious medical condition, and he is over 80, I think. So I think he's going to have a hard time. Any medical conditions is, is he's not going to get care like he thinks he's going to get. That's number one. Second, he's going to run into stressful situations in prison. And I don't mean, I mean, maybe somebody's going to say, Bill Cosby, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. And we see that all the time. You know, you come out of the cell, you're dead. I'm going to kill you. And, you know, there's people who have done that. So you're really laying in bed all night thinking, am I going to die tomorrow? I don't know how much of that Bill Cosby is going to be able to take in the stressful end of it. So now then if he makes all of that, 
there's a good chance he's going to be assaulted. I don't know many. Bernie Madoff has been uh, beaten up already a few times, a little younger. Uh, and then he, and he's in a medium security prison, Bernie Madoff. He's not in a maximum security prison. But sex offenders, they do put in maximum security prisons, depending on, on the time and stuff. The only way he can survive, in my opinion, is if they send him to a medical unit. There's an actual medical prison in the state, and every state has them, and every uh, the feds. If they send them there, I think then he has a chance. But that's I can go on and on with this subject, guys. And, uh, you uh, were listening. I you think are provided just a fascinating insight into what Bill Cosby faces and what he's already experiencing inside jail. Larry Lawton, thank you very much for your insight. Now, your book, Gangster Redemption tells the true life story of your amazing journey from being the biggest jewel robber in the United States, being tortured in prison, your associations with organised crime, and importantly, how you've developed now a nationally recognised program designed to avoid instances like this for people who come back into society. Larry Lawton, I want to thank you for your time and our man on the ground, Nick who's provided fantastic reporting from the courthouse and the prison. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. That was so illuminating to listen to what Bill Cosby faces inside prison. All right, coming up next, Dennis Deverne. He was on the boat the night Natalie Wood died. He appeared on Megan Kelly today, this week. Let's take a listen to what he told her. I know you claimed you, you were actually held hostage. Were, were you locked in someplace? What, what does that mean? Well, when I was at Robert Wagner's house, I, I was actually there for about just about a year. And um, Robert Wagner got me a job at the studio. He was doing the TV series called Heart to Heart. And um, so I would go to this if I would have like a, a, a morning call or something like that to go to the studio his driver would pick me up and take me from the house to the studio at the end of my work day. Then the driver would bring me back to the house. Uh, when I would go to go to bed for the night, my room, you'd close the door and there was there was sort of like a, uh, a magnetic lock to where you couldn't open the door. You couldn't get yourself out of your own room. I couldn't get myself out of the own room. I thought maybe the whole house has this security system. Whether it did or not, I don't know. But to yeah. me, it was like a very... Um, Locked in feeling, you know. Dennis Deverne is in the studio and he'll answer questions he's not yet been asked in a one-on-one interview with All Rise. For the first time, Robert Wagner has answered sensational claims that he was responsible for the death of his wife, Natalie Wood. As you know, listeners of this podcast, we've been following this case throughout the course of Fatal Voyage, the mysterious death of Natalie Wood. And as it premieres its final chapter, sensational new developments are being disclosed. The Hollywood actor has responded to the claims made by Lana Wood and the boat's captain, Dennis Deverne, by accusing them of exploiting the tragedy. Quote, they are despicable human beings capitalising on the accidental death of a beloved member of the Wagner family. A representative for Wagner went on to say, quote, they should be ashamed of themselves. 
To answer that accusation, joining me right now in the studio is indeed the boat captain, Dennis Deverne, and his longtime friend and co-author of the book, Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor, Marty Rawley. First to you, Dennis, how do you respond to that comment? Well, for the last couple of years, we've been working with the uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and um, I've been in an extensive interview with them, and I took a polygraph test, and I passed the test, and they find me to be very credible. And the word despicable, to me, it just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I've been accused of being somebody who has a preformed opinion about this case. I did a radio show called Elvis Duran's Morning Show last week, and he said, having listened to the podcast, it's quite clear, Dylan, that you believe Robert Wagner was responsible for the death of his wife. At that point, I said, that I don't know the answer to, but the evidence that has been mounted certainly would suggest that the version of events that was explained in 1981 is simply not the case. I don't know if Robert Wagner was responsible for the death of Natalie Wood. What I do know is that the initial investigation was bungled. I know that Robert Wagner changed his version of events. I know that you too, Dennis, have provided evidence to the LA County Sheriff's Department, which calls into question the initial version of events in 1981. And any layman looking at this case would suggest that that reeks of sensationalism, that reeks of a potential cover-up, and that reeks of something that needs to be explored. Marty? I can understand how people would think that this is sensationalized, it's gone on too long, but it hasn't. It was shortly after Natalie was gone that Dennis realized he should tell the truth. And I went to the LASD shortly after Natalie was gone, and I asked them to listen to us, and they would not do it. So then it became a mission. It became a journey for her justice. And although Dennis was telling the truth way back when, no one knew that. It wasn't that he withheld the truth. It's He just didn't tell all of the truth. And or he was coerced to tell. He was coerced. He was asked to be quiet, let an attorney handle things for you. You say nothing. He was virtually threatened to say nothing. And I find it that um, a Wagner spokesperson calling Lana Wood, who is Natalie Wood's sister, who probably knows her better than anyone else in that family. Her daughters lost her when uh, they were very young. Lana knows Natalie. She is not despicable. She cares about what happened to her sister. And the detectives have gone to Lana. They've told Lana, your sister's death was sinister. There's things that indicate foul play. Lana believes it. She is not despicable. And that's all they've got. That's all they've got against us, that we're despicable. Come forward and talk to the detectives then. Give your side of the story. Let's see who's despicable, the person named as the person of interest in a death case or the person delivering the facts. It's important for listeners of this podcast to understand that Robert Wagner has been asked to participate with the LA County Sheriff's Department on no less than eight occasions. On one particular occasion, they travelled to his home in Aspen, Colorado, and he refused to answer questions. Now, 
listeners of this podcast and indeed readers of the National Enquirer will know that we have long challenged Robert Wagner to submit to his own lie detector. We have asked him to answer questions strapped to a polygraph machine to see whether he's telling the truth. In the absence of his participation, what we did was contracted a world-renowned expert to listen to various audio interviews that Robert Wagner has given. And he fed those interviews into a high-tech machine used by law enforcement agencies around the world. And this, in Chapter 12 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood, is Mike Silvestre's findings. Let's take a listen. I'm amazed that you'd even talk to me. Why wouldn't I talk to you? I've known you since you were, since I was a child. No, I've known you since you were a child. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have talked to everybody. What, what are you, you I don't know, Kevin and of, Ralph, you, I don't you, accuse you of anything. You accuse me of murdering her, of taking all these positions. It's incredible. I can't believe that you'd do something like that. I just can't believe it. When he's, he's saying that, I've talked to everybody. He he, he was he had stress. He was showing stress on that response. He, that deception, um, not being truthful in what he's saying about that response, um, as well as you know, and and, and they talked about uh, uh, me murdering her. There was a significant amount of deception um, uh, when when he responded murdering her. There was a a significant amount. Uh, when, when that was said. Mike Silvestre's analysis, Marty, is that Robert Wagner is not telling the oh, truth. It's obvious in every interview he has given, especially the ones with Larry King. Um, there's a few other his TV friends that have um, allowed him interviews, but the questions are always pre-programmed. Never bring up this about Natalie Wood. Don't bring up that. And But what? when it, her name is brought up, he fidgets. He moves around. Answers are, well, uh, yeah, that, uh, you know, and, uh, well, it's all conjecture. That's all he can give. You know, he was the last person with his wife before she was in the water. He could give a lot more. He chooses not to. Part of the reason this case was reopened by the LA County Sheriff's Department was because they re-examined the autopsy. They noticed that there were significant bruising in critical places that would suggest that she was the victim of an assault before she went into the water, which renders the question, was she indeed unconscious before she went into the water? Now, Dennis, you're in a very rare position to be able to answer this question because you were asked to do something that I could only describe as ghastly. You were forced to identify the body of this Oscar-winning actress. And I hate to do this to you, but what was her body like when you saw her? Well, I was really, really devastated when I saw Natalie. And um, I was especially devastated when I did see bruises and uh, it, it was just a very, very, very sad moment. Where were the bruises? They were on her, on her face. Um, I, ma- I mainly remember on her face because that's what I really just looked at was her face. But they were, they were on, her, on, the, on the rest of her body as well. So let's consider this. According to Robert Wagner, Natalie Wood, in her nightgown wearing socks, heard the dinghy crashing against the splendour the boat they owned. In the middle of the night, intoxicated with a morbid fear of water, went outside onto the boat's deck 
got onto the swim step and tried to tie the dinghy back up. If she fell into the water, Dennis, would she have got bruises on her face? Dylan, I don't think she would have received any bruises on her face because, number one, the dinghy was made out of rubber. And uh, at nighttime, it has a wants to deflate a little bit, so it would make it even a little bit softer. So if she didn't get the bruises on her face from falling into the water or banging against the side of the dinghy or, at worst, the boat, how did she get them, Dennis? The only thing I've thought of that... I think may have what happened was it was a, uh, a physical fight that it had to come from Robert Wagner because he was the one with her having the fight. I believe she was dragged along the non-skid deck. There's also bruises at Natalie's ankles, which actually looks like hands were holding her legs and dragging her. And the abrasion on her face is in an upward position. In other words, the type you would get from being dragged along something that's a little rough. And I asked Dennis, and he had just applied non-skid applicant to the boat for the winter. Now, medical and scientific evidence um, indicates she was unconscious in the water. So she was probably unconscious at some point on the boat. Was she dragged along the non-skid surface? That's very likely for how the cheek abrasion happened. Marty, you've spent 38 years investigating this case. Detective Ralph Hernandez, as part of Fatal Voyage, the mysterious death of Natalie Wood, admitted that he'd spoken to the then coroner, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, who has now said that he made the wrong determination. How significant is that? It's it's huge. It, It completely turns the original case around. You had a coroner who wanted to get it over with, a lot of pressure put on him to get it over with. Who was placing that pressure on him? He got fired anyway. Noguchi was fired soon after announcing that Natalie Wood's death was accidental. Um, so much was missed in this investigation. It, it, everything fell th- through the cracks from, you know, the sheriff's department that didn't investigate certain areas of this case and then the coroner who wrapped it up within a few days. One of the most striking things about Natalie Wood's story, and Marty and and Dennis, you and I have talked about this for a very long time. Imagine today if Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt and George Clooney were on the back of a boat with a boat captain and Angelina Jolie somehow died. We would not stop until we found out the answer as to what occurred to her. There are very few people the three of us in this room and the production crew, that are still fighting to find out what happened. And it might well be foul play. It might well be not. But no one should die without knowing, their loved ones knowing, what happened to them. But this points me to the final question that I have for you, and it's the most challenging one ever. Robert Wagner is getting old. He's refusing to answer questions. Dennis has passed a polygraph test. Christopher Walken, based on a comment that he made to Megan Kelly's Today Show, for which you guys appeared on most recently, seemingly was brazen about the case. Police want to solve this case, but I fear that we will never know the answer. It's very likely. Um, 
Natalie Wood was so iconic. This will never go away. And it's an unsolved death. And all I can hope for, because I do believe there's enough circumstantial evidence, medical evidence, and witnesses, that this a grand jury... Um, well, a grand to, jury to, could be convened. Yes. Gr- and so then Wagner There is no statute of limitations on murder. Exactly. So a grand jury could be convened right at this moment for which those jurors would determine if Robert Wagner should or should not be charged. Exactly. And there's, it's never too late for justice, especially for someone of Natalie Wood's magnitude. She was iconic. And, and anyone, it doesn't matter who you are, you deserve the answer for your death especially a suspicious one. Dennis, you're the man that brought this case back into prominence in association with Marty by releasing your book and by tendering your new evidence to the LA County Sheriff's Department. You passed a polygraph test. You've said that you believe Robert Wagner is responsible for the murder of Natalie Wood. What do you want to see happen next? I would really, really like for Robert Wagner to tell the truth. And by telling the truth means that he ultimately might well be charged. Whatever the consequences might be. Do you want to see him jailed? Of course, if he's, if he's guilty. And you believe he is? I believe he is. Which means he would be convicted if he was found guilty and jailed. Correct. And you want to see that? Yes, I do. It's an unbelievable case. And as I said, if this was something that happened in 2018 we wouldn't be sitting around talking about it on a podcast. Exactly. There would be a ravenous appetite to try and find the truth. The truth is something that the three of us here have tried to explore for a number of years. Personally, I want to thank you guys for your participation in the podcast Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood, but I also want to thank you for your participation with 48 Hours, CBS, writing your own book, talking to us. I have always said from day one, No one should die without their loved ones knowing what took place, what occurred them to lose their life. And in this particular instance, we still don't know. There are so many unanswered questions, answers we need. And to you too, I want to thank you very much for being so candid, honest, and keeping this candle burning alive. Thank you. Thank you. Chapter 12, Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood is available wherever you get your podcasts and indeed on Apple Podcasts. This has been All Rise, Episode 15, Season 1. The end of Season 1. And coming up next week, Season 2, a brand new All Rise with new segments, you asked for it, by popular demand. All Rise is the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it is.